You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Say hello to my little friend. To infinity and beyond. Like tears in rain. On Wednesdays we wear pink. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Here's looking at you, kid. You talking to me? You're gonna need a bigger boat. You'll always have Paris. Hello and welcome back to another edition of Films and Friends. My name's Josh. I am joined as ever by Tobias. Hey, how's it going? And we are joined today by our, I think it is our sick guest. Yeah. It is Matt. Hi, great honour to be here on so, the podcast, yeah. Welcome, welcome to the show. Um, you can hear it a lot better than the audience, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> because the wonderful world of the Students Union at the University of Manchester has three gig venues, well, four gig venues in it, so three in it and one attached to it. If you record in the evening, you've got to deal with uh, some background noise, so we apologise for that. We should. I should have looked up who's actually playing, then we could say the back- background music is composed by, and then said who it was, but I didn't yeah. bother checking. Or maybe, instead of saying, crediting them, we could just get ready for the lawsuit. Yes, when they, when I get an email in my inbox saying about how we are uh, ripping them off, and they want uh, some kind of copyright for this, I'll um, email them back and say no. We were here first. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, depends if it's fair use or not, you know. Wait, we, it's fair use as long as we criticise it at some point. So I'm really enjoying the music. What do you think of it, Tobias? Bit, it's a bit muffled. Would, so yeah. uh, they got improved. Would you reckon, Matt? Just, just uh, quickly. A bit too loud, honestly. Yeah. Um, so that's fair use. Everything's okay. Um, let's carry on with the podcast. Absolutely. Fantastic. So how we like to start these, obviously, so it's fair to get going, is um, for you to explain how do you know either myself or Tobias? Right. So um, I know Tobias. I've been living with him since September. Basically, I met him through MUN. A wonderful society here at the University of Manchester. Uh, got along really well. We've chatted movies. We've been discussing, I mean, everything. He studies politics. He's, I mean, as you all know, everybody that listens to this podcast, you know, he does wonderful work reviewing movies. You know, so whenever there's a movie in Manchester that I might have heard of, he immediately tells me if it's good or not, if I should see it or not. <laughs> and then I try myself and see. Most yeah. of the time, he's correct. Yeah, a lot, a lot of time of shit talking. Thank you, I appreciate that. Welcome. Appreciate that. A friend of mine from school who always took the piss out of me, he's like, you're a hater, you hate Marvel films, I can't trust your opinion on Marvel films, trust my opinion on other films. And a couple of weeks back, he was going to go see Ad Astra with his family. Hmm. Well, they suggested it, and he said, hang on, hang on. Tobias says, Ad Astra isn't good, so uh, let's not go. And they said, we trust his opinion, we won't. <laughs> so I'm an established household name. You uh, better, hey, I'm waiting for you to get on Rotten Tomatoes, honestly. On it, I, I actually did look that up. Really? Jokes aside, I looked up what, what it takes to be on um, Rotten Tomatoes as a reviewer. And you need to have a reach right. of a certain number, like a week. So basically, mm-hmm. you need to be hitting numbers in the thousands, or like dozens of thousands. Um, hey. It's it's rough. Like, you need to be up there to be visible. So, right. hey, in the future, yet. who knows? In the future, who knows? I can't believe that people would actually... I can never imagine people would take me as an oracle for film advice. I don't think I know anyone who would actually listen. So people would probably ask my opinion, but if I said that, I wouldn't recommend saying that, they'd just probably say, yeah, say it anyway. It, but it, then I believe my, <laughs> my opinions are quite questionable anyway, so I wouldn't, really trust, I wouldn't trust myself to give my... I wouldn't even give myself that amount of power, so I can't blame other people for failing to do so as well. But to get sort of back to uh, Matt, right, um, yeah. another question we'd like to start off with is, um, so other than MUM, what do you actually... What kind of stuff do you do? Occupation, hobbies? Um, yeah, obviously. So, I mean, uh, here I study politics and Arabic, so I've been doing uh, languages in general for a very long time. I've been doing debating and public speaking. That's why I joined MUN in the first place last year and uh, during my first year. Uh, I've been doing debating. I did a TED Talk, actually, on languages, so um, anybody who wants to check that and give it that a view, sure, it's on YouTube. Just search my name. It's somewhere in there. It's horrible, and I'm nervous as hell. Uh, aside of that, I really like drama. I used to act and direct back when I was in high school. It was a lot of fun, and that kind of mixes with my pleasure for movies that I've had since I was, you know, I since I can't even remember, honestly. So, because of your not really uh, background, but deep love for drama and acting. Right, yeah. When you watch a film, do you think that you pay more attention to the performances uh, because of that? Depends. I mean, when I watch a movie, the thing that I pay most attention to 
is the technical stuff. That's what really impresses me when I watch a movie. That's why I have such an admiration for movies of Sam Mendes, and I'm so excited for 1917 that's coming out in a couple of weeks, uh, because of him being a masterful director who hires the best cinematographers. He's working with Roger Deakins again, yeah. and uh, I didn't like Spectre, but that one opening shot with them in Mexico City, that is amazing. Spe- and the- Yeah, Spectre, just for the visual spectacle of it, is exactly. totally worth it. Exactly. You know, the story, uh, but that's, yeah. that's a different question. Crazy thing I learned about um, 1917. So when the trailer came out, I was like, this feels like they're trying to hit on the same market that Dunkirk hit. I, you know, that was my right, uh, yeah. very quick judgment. Something I learned yesterday, the film is composed of seven shots. That's it. Yeah, seven really long takes, and there's very clear breaks between them as far from what I remember reading this morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, apparently you can't even discern the cuts like, it's almost as if it's one take, which is just amazing. And those backgrounds and the settings. And apparently it's nearly all, like, CGI-less. Like, it's real, which is just amazing. Like, it's a feat. Yeah. And they're calling that. Like, it's calling they're calling the best war movie since Saving Private Ryan. So when does that come out in the UK? Do we have any idea about that? I know that the review embargo lifted today or yesterday, so I assume it's coming out probably either the end of this week or next week, probably. Uh, No, it's actually... I think it's coming out, like, mid-December. I I saw the reviews. I saw the review by Guardian, and I read it. It was glowing reviews Mm. of the movie. But I think it's coming out in wide release in mid-December, or even after New Year, because it's an Oscar contender. Of course. That's quite a while, then, for the embargo and the thing. Yeah. So... We're talking about films with glowing receptions, hmm. but it's not about the critics. It's about your glowing receptions of films. Yes. We're, we're getting good at these transitions. We said it last week, but... <laughs> we, are, we are absolutely nailing them. We're I'm, nailing them. Every week, I, it's glowing. There we yeah, go. I mean, we're getting be- you're getting better, and I don't know, but obviously, you know, it <laughs> you, seems you'll seamless. Improve, you'll improve as you go on, don't worry. <laughs> so, what first question we always ask our guests, name some of your favourite films, actors, genres, directors. Right, okay. I think I have to give... Uh, me- Massive props. There's one movie that I have fallen in love with about two years ago. It's called Le Samurai. It's a French movie, so uh, that obviously is a big uh, takeaway. Like people don't usually enjoy foreign movies, which I think is a great shame. There's some fantastic directors out there in the foreign world, but just in the Anglo- Anglo- uh, Anglo-Saxon Anglophone world. Uh, it's a movie about uh, this hitman who does this really hit job and he f- messes it up so bad that now he's on the run. It's it's a very simple premise by the director Jean-Pierre Melville who has made two other excellent movies. Um, basically, on this, he's like the Scorsese of the 60s and 70s of France, and it's just so good. Like, it's amazing. And none of, none of people have watched it, honestly. And Alain Delon is fantastic. And it, like, it's one of those movies that just sticks with you, and you just know the opening shot forever, basically. Yeah. Aside of that, I mean, the standard, I mean, Pulp Fiction, um, a lot of Scorsese, I think his best work uh, has to be uh, Gangs of New York or Goodfellas. I love Gangs of New York because of Daniel Day-Lewis. So yeah, those are a couple of movies. There's a solid choice. So going back to um, uh, Le Samurai, so thinking Mm -hmm. of French cinema as a whole, Mm -hmm. are you a big fan of French cinema or is it just certain standouts that get you? I, I try to watch as much French cinema as I can. I do speak French, so it's a great like help for me to practice. But honestly, I need to I need to watch more. I um, I mean, movie that I think most people know is Amélie, but mm. I think other movies from the same director, um, whose name I just cannot remember right now, uh, are really good. I mean, he did um, Alien Four, I think. So you know, better than mine. It's it's not it's it's his worst movie, I think, by far. But he has a very distinct style, and I appreciate that at least. Okay. Um, aside of that, um, there uh, is a strange thing. I'm Czech, which um, you know it's strange because you know I can speak about Czech cinema for hours, but let's not do that because literally nobody will clue hey, in. You know, we can get into that later when it comes <laughs> to the childhood part. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. No, but um, I think that what a lot of people grew up at least in the Republic is um, Louis Define and his comedy and French comedy is amazing. I really despise American comedy movies, most of them at least, unless they're like exceptionally good. But French comedy, oh my god, that is just fantastic. Yeah, French comedy is where it shines through, I completely agree with that. Mm. I haven't seen too many French films, mm. probably only a, I could probably count them on one hand. Like, right. I actually can't remember all, all the ones I've seen, it's not that many. But there is something about French comedy, and whether it's old or new, that it just hits the nail on the head in a way that other countries can't really do. Right. I think it has a certain sense of sort of like um, 
social understanding, like it tries to poke fun at social norms. Whereas most comedies nowadays, um, like America used to do this. They used to do this back in the 80s and 70s with sort of like the spoof genres and parody movies, like with Airplane, where they try and hit certain marks of how society perceives certain yeah. events, you know, but they kind of moved away from that now, whilst French comedy still retains that. Absolutely. And I appreciate that so much. One of my favorite French films is... Um, uh, Qu'est-ce que nous avons fait au bon Dieu? So what have we done to the good Lord? And... It's a film about, uh, I, I, I can't remember exactly who's who in the film, but essentially one family of one religion is being merged with the family of another religion through um, a marriage. And however, one of the cousins, so basically I, I think it's like a super, super Catholic family is being married to a Jewish family however one of the cousins is dating a muslim girl while another one of the guys is uh, american so it's all this mix of different cultures and the way they kind of play with stereotypes but ridiculing them it's not it's not like american cinema now where stereotypes are that it doesn't go beyond the stereotypes right. like oh it's funny because it's stereotypical uh -huh. whereas french films are like why is it stereotypical? And then it's funny because it just so happens to be stereotypical. And weirdly enough, like a bit of a tiny tangent, that's basically why I'm doing my dissertation on this year. I, I want to talk about how Jews are represented on film. And I think French comedy is one of the most self-aware um, forms of filmmaking, especially when it comes right. to uh, religious groups. Obviously, I mean, they, they have that sort of um, understanding that most other comedies don't have nowadays. I think I'm very, I'm very poorly um, educated on mm. a French comedy, and I can't really think of any that I've actually seen. The only sort of related thing I've seen is there is a French film uh, that uh, roughly translates into English as uh, Dinner for Idiots. Yes. And it was remade into a film with Paul Rudd and Steve Carell mm -hmm. called Dinner yeah. for Schmucks. Yes. And I remember watching that when I was younger, and that is... I actually quite enjoyed it, and I probably would watch it again, but I imagine to someone who's a big fan of... Have you seen the original? I've seen the remake when I was a kid as well. I've rewatched like, five or six years ago mm. it's so bad it's yeah, no, painful no. oh it's bad like, it's, not, it's not I mean it's not Oscar winning no no yeah. I mean I'm a, I'm very bad for stuff like that <laughs> America, it's not, it's, I do really enjoy so like, Step Brothers I'm a big fan of but that's um, different, I think. Is it different? I, I'd say that um, I'd say that's basically just because of the director and the people behind the camera. Because Adam McKay is probably the one of the few directors who does comedies or did comedies until until recently in America who I respect. Mm. Because Anchorman is actually the one of the comedies I can actually rewatch all the time, and I can quote that movie till the day I die, mm. honestly. And that's because he's a great director, and is a gr and Will Ferrell, I think, is a great comedian, honestly. You know, I think he's gone downhill recently, though. Yes, I think the film I saw, the one that sort of turned it for me, was. Did you, either of you two ever bother watching um, Get Hard? No, uh, no. That's the one where it's him. He goes to prison, uh, oh. and Kevin Hart has to teach him how to be in prison. I saw, I saw the trailer for oh, that. No. I, oh, so I remember bad. that. It, it yeah, looks no, bad. I've not seen it. It is. Um, I mean, it was released what probably three, four years ago, and I imagine if I rewatched it now, it would be, in a word, problematic. No, the one I the one I like Will Ferrell is um, uh, what's it called? But the one where they are the the buddy cops. Oh, the other guys. The other guys. That is oh, really good as well. But that's yeah. Adam McKay. That's the thing. That, uh, that's that's the guy behind Big Short and Vice. You know. Well, there you go. And other guys is fantastic. Oh. I mean, it's got one of the greatest opening scenes of all time. Has to be. Yes. Just aim for the bushes. Oh God, that's so funny. Fant fantastic film. And, and yeah, Will Ferrell. Um, the, the bits where I he kind of loses me is when he goes too much into the uh, screaming idiot, where he like every film he has a moment where he just completely loses it and like gets angry or or I don't know, it's just it's super like emotional, like super sad at the point where it's just ridiculous. That's when I find it it, it puts me off a bit. Mm. But the, the subtleties of, of his characters are really what um, makes him that just that little bit, just special. a little bit special. Yeah. yeah, I mean also I mean the pairing with Mark Wahlberg. And you can see that that's just the magic of that one movie because they did uh, Daddy Comes Home, whatever it's called. Daddy's the, Home, I think. Daddy's Home, and yeah. And there's two yeah. of those as well, aren't there? Yeah, there's two of them and now. the second one's oh, yeah. Mel, Mel, Mel Gibson and... Yeah. Um, Jonathan Lithgow. Yes, Jonathan Lithgow, yeah. Yeah. And that's not good, apparently. Right. I haven't seen I couldn't bother watching that, honestly. You know, But it just doesn't look 
as entertaining as the other guys. The thing that always kills you from that film, I always think of, is the bit in the middle with the desk pop thing, <laughs> where he convinces him that it's a real thing to do if you set your desk and fire your gun into the ceiling, call it a desk pop, and he actually does, and everyone else just looks, oh, God, it's still getting that. <laughs> One thing I did notice on your sort of list here of films mm. and photo actors, and I mean, this may be a really weird shout to make, and it may be completely unrelated, right. but having spoken to you now about, um, so you study obviously with Arabic, mm. you said you can speak French. Um, you, one of the top films you put here was Arrival. And yes. is that at all sort of linguistic related or just because you like the film sort of as a whole? So I've, um, that was actually, that was my second movie that I've seen from Denis Villeneuve. The first one was uh, Prisoners. Uh, I didn't see it in cinemas. I was, it came like 2013. I was too young to actually even see that. I'm mm. glad. Because, but it's a, a fantastic movie. And I think he's a wonderful director. Um, Arrival, when I saw that, I didn't know what to expect from it. Obviously, mm. I, I knew it was going to be good. You know, the visual looks stunning. Yeah. But it blew me away to just amazing proportions because I'm really big fan of linguistics. Yeah. I'm, I'm a great fan of how language works. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out again to my TED Talk. That's basically what I talk about. Yeah. You know, that's why I do this podcast. You just saw in my TED Talk. Obviously, that's a lie. No, <laughs> but um, uh, Arrival for me was amazing because it tried to look at language analytically and I just love that and paired up with actual what seems like real linguistic science and the science behind how we speak and how we communicate that to me just seems fantastic you know and um when you look at it and you like um you try and work with other languages and you think of how they're communicating it seems so fantastic I love philosophy I love the philosophy in that movie about time and about how we can like perceive ourselves you know it's just it's, it's just a movie that i could talk about them we actually four hours like we could i could literally sit here for two hours and just discuss that one movie scene by scene and how the beginning is really not the beginning i just oh go watch it anybody who hasn't seen it go watch Arrival's it it's incredible it, it is really good yeah. <laughs> the ending the ending yep. when you know just, what's gonna happen yeah you know spoiler free obviously but when it's, when you know what's gonna happen and you just see it and it just oh it tells you your heart breaking yeah and you mentioned that the linguistics seem to be based on real linguistics. And one of the, the gripes I... I well, I don't really have it with a lot of films, because um, my suspension of disbelief can be pretty good depending on how a film frames it. Because one thing is pseudoscience. Another thing is movie science. And movie science... Uh, you, you kind of have to believe it when you're thinking of, say... Oh, I don't know. Say it's like Resident Evil. Right. Where they they tr- you, they try and make the virus believable, but it just doesn't. It just falls apart as it's like, well, no. Now they have like the mega zombie, but now people are resist resi- like it just loses it. Right. Um. But arrival. How how accurate is the linguistic uh, idea in the film? Right. I am not a, like you know. Disclaimer: I am not a linguistic scientist. I am you know I something that I found that pa- I, I'm passionate in looking at how languages work, and when I travel around, I love, like, trying to understand even a little bit of the language, and say, like, okay, so this is how noun end, noun end, this is how verbs end, and stuff like that. What seems interesting to me is not necessarily, like, the, I'd say, you know, bogus language, but, like, how they arrive at the language, how they try and communicate first. And that's what really interesting to me, because that seems just extremely human to me, just how they try and first communicate with these aliens that obviously far far surpass us in uh, knowledge and and everything, but how they try to um, create a relationship between humans and them. That's what's interesting to me, how they use pictograms, how they use simple phrases, pointing, you know, how they work from a certain point of understanding that I think nowadays people don't usually have towards people with different languages and just give up on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that to me just, it just seems fantastic. And obviously the cinematography, the production design of that movie, uh, the design of the actual aliens, you know, the um, heptapods, I think they were called. Heptapods, yeah. Heptapods, yeah. yeah. Oh, love everything about it. Uh, I think that if you want to talk specifically linguistics, I think that um, it really touches on um, how Chinese works, but uh, I am no expert on Chinese. That's just a layman's understanding. Well, there you go. And... That touch, that that very difficult world of how humans interact with something they don't understand is probably what made Denis Villeneuve such a perfect fit to direct Blade Runner 2049, yes, which is another I'm, film on I'm so glad you brought that up. I was going to bring that up and anyway. Thank you. you. I can talk about Blade Runner 2049. Same. 
as long as I want. I even have the art book, which is mm. this huge book that um, it, it's. I'm so jealous of that. It opens up so wide once you flip the book open, and it's all about the production design and all that. And everything about that film is brilliant, but the story at its core is not really about. You don't even need to think about it being about replicants or about mm. robots, quote unquote. Even though they're not really robots, right. but you know, it's about humans coming to understand something they don't understand, or something that doesn't understand humans trying to understand humans. That movie is, by the way, my favorite movie of the decade. Like by far, it is. I saw the movie like four times when it was in cinemas. I like. I loved it. Everything about that movie to me is perfect. There is not a single thing in that movie that is that has a flaw. Not a single aspect. There is not a single plot hole to me. I don't see anything wrong with it. It's just perfect, and it's exactly what you said. I mean, it's this taking something real, which I mean, sci-fi has been doing since sci-fi has been around. Of course, you know, taking something very real and putting it in a realistic situation, elevating it in a sense, and examining through a different lens. And that to me, just I mean, Blade Runner succeeds in that. I mean, both of them, like the original. I mean. That is just a masterclass in uh, philosophy and what it means to be a human and, and self. I did my philosophy essay back when I was doing IB high school, actually, on that movie. Because it was really just good. so in- yeah, it was so interesting to me. See, the thing with the original Blade Runner, and uh, here's a bit of a hot take. I watched it and I thought, I understand the ground it broke. It just hasn't aged as well as it uh, most people would claim it has i agree i think that movie has really interesting ideas visually it, it it has some fantastic shots but i think that it is not better than the one that denny villeneuve made two yeah, years ago I, I think the sequel is actually better and something i was learning about the other week was the whole edition mm. fiasco that happened with the original film so for those of you who don't know blade runner 2049 released in cinemas and then they released a director's cut and then they released an extended cut and then they finally went well no no we need to correct this and they released the final cut (laughs) so there are all these different versions of a film and something that makes the final cut brilliant which is the only one i've seen is that there's no narration you it, it treats the audience as intelligent, as someone that is trying to pick apart what they're watching. Of course, that's the norm now. Back in, was it 76? 81, 81. I think, or yeah. two, like early 80s. Early 80s. Back in the early 80s, this understanding of, of intelligent audiences wasn't really a thing. So most of the film is narrated by uh, Harrison Ford, and if you ever, if you want to just look it up, Harrison Ford Blade Runner narration, he sounds so bored and just void of all emotion. It's it's actually terrible. It completely ruins the film. So essentially, what I'm trying to get at is that yeah, the original, the fact they had to re-release it while it was in cinemas to make it better, really kind of taints its its uh, success in a way. I mean, I get that. For me, I mean. Apparently, from what I heard, it wasn't really Scott's fault. It was the studio. They were like, this is boring. Nobody's going to enjoy a two-hour-and-a-half-hour movie about philosophical robots brooding in rain, you know, and some, like, um, papier-mâché unicorns. Like, that. nobody's going to be interested in that. So they recut it, uh, and that's when all these different cuts came around, you know. And you're absolutely right that, like, the last one with Ridley Scott uh, actually sort of, like, had the final say is the best one. That's the one I've seen as well. Um, Ridley Scott is again another director that sort of like had a couple of great movies, you know, not so much nowadays. You know? No, what Ridley Scott does well though, and it's something to be admired, is how he works, which is what a lot of people will, will people if you by people I mean industry professionals will say if you read up about opinions on Ridley Scott, is the fact that whenever a film is in trouble and they bring in Ridley Scott to executive produce it or direct it, he comes in with his crew and goes, right, we're going to work with this, we're going to do this, this, that. And he could produce a full feature film in about three months. 
Well, you have to take, for example, when he replaced um, Kevin Spacey with Christopher Plummer for All the Money in the World. Right. There is no... I don't think there's any other filmmaker that would have been bold enough to do that. No. no. And also, because... And obviously there's, there's people who would argue that he did it purely for marketing reasons and it's, it was a kind of cynical plot. Well, not cynical, but it is... Well, yeah, you could say... Some people will probably say it was a bit of a cynical ploy because, actually, he didn't need to do it, but he did it because social justice warriors are going to be on his, uh, on his back if he doesn't or they're going to really applaud him because he did. But I actually don't think he did because... Having seen the rest of his body of work and his talents as a director, I think it would just be something that he would do sort of as a kind of like... Regardless, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it is... And I think that people do say, I think, that it, is, it was cynic, perhaps a cynical marketing ploy, but actually, A, it was a very good... A, it was a really bold decision that didn't need to be made, and B, it was pulled off with incredible incredible ability. Yeah, I, I'd say it was definitely comes down to uh, Scott's own vision rather than the studio. Yeah, and I mean, Plummer got nominated for an Oscar for that movie, you know, and he came in super late, as you said. There you know, you go. like it clearly shows that he knows what he's doing. You know, I mean, what I'm, what I think with really Scott is he's one of those directors that has like a good movie, a flop, a great movie, two flops, good movie. Like you have Gladi- Gladiator, which I like. It's an okay movie. I don't think it deserved Best Picture back in two thousand, you know, or two thousand one. I think it was a good movie. And then you've got like Robin Hood, which is. Not a good movie by any standard. No. Or Gods of uh, Gods and Kings or Exodus. Gods and Kings, yeah. Yes. The biblical yes. one, you know. But then you've got the Martians and you've got the aliens and you've got the Blade Runners and you've got, uh, you know, uh, so what was it called? Um, all the Money in the World? Thank you. All the Money in the World. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, which are good movies. You know, some of them are excellent, you know. And then you've got all of like, the middle ones. A good year, but with the one when Russell Crowe goes to Southern France. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, you know, he's an odd director. In a sense. I think perhaps the only thing to say is sort of his consistency perhaps isn't the same as someone like, as we were saying before, was... I'm trying to think who we were talking about earlier, who was really consistent. Denny Villeneuve. Denny Villeneuve. Denny Villeneuve and... um, Adam McKay. Adam McKay and... Who was the other person we were talking about earlier? I've lost it completely. I'm trying Uh, to think who it was. It was the director who we talked about first. Uh, We talked about French movies first. And then we talked about... Um, God, I can remember. We are professionals, as you can see. We are, we, we yes. are professionals. Martin Scorsese. Ah, thank you. Ah, thank you. That guy. That guy, yeah. See, nobody knows about him, yeah. Scorsese. You know, who is he? That, that's and a known director. Studios <laughs> intervening leads us to films that you don't like. And hmm. sure, you listed a ton of stuff, but this is Films and Friends. We are known for having the hot take that Marvel ain't that great. Can I swear on this podcast? <laughs> you can, but it will be bleeped out. Uh, shall I bleep myself out myself? Because if we're going to talk Marvel, I will not be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Josh I... then has to sit through it and bleep it all out. <laughs> Don't make his life any harder than it already is. I'm just going to say, and I, this has been this comparison made so many times, but Marvels are the westerns of this decade or like this couple last years. They're saturating the market with, or like no matter what, superhero movies in general. They're saturating the market. Sometimes a movie comes around that tries to tackle the issue of what it actually is. Um, um, what's the Western I'm thinking about? Um, High Noon, um, that tried to do that back in the 50s. Um, Once Upon a Time in the West, I think was the one by Sergio Leone, the one where, about uh, with Henry Fonda. You know, those movies try and sort of like look at the genre critically yeah which and you is have a weird one because they talk about the collapse of the wild west mm-hmm. from a mythical standpoint right but that also ties into the mythos of the genre where they were saying this this genre is dying and they had to make films to self-critique yeah. yet it, marvel doesn't really do that marvel isn't there yet i'd say you know westerns have been there since what basically since the age since cinema started, that was the first thing they did because it was in California, and you know, California's a you know dry land. You know, there's so much potential there to shoot, um, but the genre died out sooner, like after a couple of decades. I think today, with the way that we consume media, it's going to be quicker, and you can sort of like see this fatigue coming in. Um, I think that a lot of people are going to tune out of the next couple of Marvel movies because you know. Avengers kind of like stop being their thing. Maybe that's not gonna happen, you know. I kind of wish it did. It does because I actually want some different movies, and I hate the monopoly that Disney has now on entertainment, or or at least at least on sort of like blockbuster entertainment. Yeah, you know when when they basically own like they have what they've crossed three billions with Frozen two now, yeah, and it's not it's even the end crazy. of the year, and like it's 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 insane to me. Yeah, you know? no, it, it really is quite uh, scary 
for uh, the rest of the industry. I like the 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 shock that's happening and the fact that so many directors. When are the avatars out. coming out? By the way, uh, I think. The is first it? one is 2021, I think. Yeah, I think, it got pushed, I think it was meant to be 2020, but I think it got pushed back. It right. did, yeah. Because that's Disney as well now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. Yep. And that's, like, they're going to have all, like, the movies. Like, the summer's just yeah. going to be Disney summer. And See, it's... it's an interesting point, because if we think of not Disney as a whole, but of Disney as Marvel Studios, they've reached this point where they are really, really relying on audience loyalty to stay right. afloat, because of Disney Plus. Mm. Disney Plus is another commitment, another monthly monetary commitment that people need to make. Right. What do you actually think about Disney Plus? See, you, you, have, you don't have it, right? I, well, Disney Plus isn't out in the UK yet. Right, okay. Um, so I am watching Mandalorian through totally legal means. I right, obviously, swear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it, I think that if you really like Disney, from a fan point, and I'm not talking about morality because Disney, that's scummy mm-hmm. as hell. But if if you're into Disney films and Disney, even like the direct TV ones and like Disney princesses and everything, it's a brilliant streaming platform because they have such a big monopoly on so many IPs. Right. It really is a really good hub to find all this content. But the, it's how's that going to play out in the long term? Because right now, you pick it up, you say, oh man, they got Zack and, Ly- uh, Zach and Cody's uh, film where they go to whatever. Hmm. You watch that, you watch a couple other silly Disney films, six months down the line, if you're not into the Marvel stuff, if you're not into some of their original TV shows, will you keep paying for this? That's where the question lies, and I don't know if they're really playing the long game here. It's interesting to see that a lot of their original programming is coming directly from the MCU. So you have stuff like the animated one, which is like What If, and you have the um, Scarlet Witch and the Vision one, and then you've got is it Hawkeye, Hawkeye, Hawkeye. Maybe there's a Loki one as well. Yeah, Loki, Loki one, one as well. Yeah. So, I, I yeah, I think it, it, the core fan base of Marvel is going to go wherever the content is. Right. The question is, though, and I've been pondering this myself recently, is do you, either of you two think that the MCU bubble will burst eventually? And if so, when do you think it's going to happen? Because I think it's coming sooner than we reckon. I think it's going to happen really soon. I mean, you can look at the movies that are lined up. Like, um, I think if you look at the reactions from 2008 when Iron Man was coming out, people were not really expecting that movie to do any good. Like, they were thinking, okay, this is the next Daredevil, this is the next um, Ghost Rider or whatever, you know, it's going to be bad. But then it sort of progressed and like snowballed into this massive franchise, the biggest franchise on Earth. Bigger, I'd say even bigger than Star Wars at this point. I think that the bubble's going to have to burst at some point, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll stop making movies. It means that suddenly they're going to go down. It's, go- it's not going to be a billion dollars a movie. It's mm. going to be 700 million or it's going to be 600 million or, six, or 550. And yeah, it's slowly going to come, it's, it's going to slowly come down. And I think you can sort of see that. I mean, Spider- uh, Far From Home still made a gazillion money you know but that's because it's spider-man it's a really well-known ip yeah i don't know how the i don't know i i don't know what the name is there is a movie coming out about um a monk who has like these mystical magical powers yeah i've never it? heard of oh, is it, it shang shang li shang li yeah thank you shang li yeah yeah and that's coming on like two years yeah i don't know if people are gonna go see that no it's it's what established ips you know even my grandmother knows who the hulk is yeah but also you also got to think about um especially to sort of combine the not that well-known ips because actually what a lot of people don't realize with the mcu is that actually in terms of the original comics the uh, first phase marvel films actually the original avengers lineup included some fairly obscure like iron man wasn't a big part of yeah, the no, not comics back in the day and neither was stuff like hawkeye or um Scarlet Witch or Black I was going to say Scarlet Johansson, but her yeah. use Scarlet Witch. Yeah, no, I did, yeah. I did as well. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's sort of. So yeah, that's going to happen. And then I think like there's kind of a more of a sort of. I'm I'm dreading the summer when there's going to be an Avengers movie, a, a standalone superhero movie by of some Marvel character, an X Men movie, and an Avatar movie, all in the same summer. That to me is frightening. I yeah. think I, I think I think Disney's gonna like they're gonna dig their own hole because if they release and they're smart, you know, I'm, I'm you know, they've been really successful so far. There's no sign of them making mistakes. 
but the one year when they start releasing this this much content at once, and they will have to, because this year has been pretty, you know, lackluster in terms of what Marvel movies have been provided. Usually we get like three. This year we only got uh, Endgame and Spider-Man. I think they're going to start digging their own grave in that sense. Yeah, I see, hope so. I, what we were saying about Bubble, I think that by twenty, so by the end of twenty twenty one is when it's going to burst, because it's the case of asking too much of your audience. So right now, to my understanding, if you want to understand uh, Avengers Endgame, you watch whichever film you want of the standalone ones. Watch Avengers uh, one, Avengers Infinity uh, War. You don't need to watch. You don't need to watch Ultron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you, you, you just need to watch like the Avengers films. But now it's getting to the point where the Avengers lineup has switched around completely. I, I don't even know who's who because I, I stopped following. It. I've never. Really There's like Marvel. four groups now. Yeah, so it's weird. And the next Avengers film, which is slated, I guess it's like well, twenty twenty one. I think it is. Or uh, God, I don't knows. know. I hope it's far away. That film requires you to watch the standalone superhero films releasing throughout 2020 and the TV shows to understand where everything's going on. And think of the hours. So the way I, I usually count TV shows and films on hours invested. I prefer film uh, to TV because I'd rather sit down for two hours and that's the film. I watched it. It was brilliant. I could talk about it as long as I want. TV requires commitment. I never got into Breaking Bad, which my, our friend Mossin keeps telling me to watch it. Yeah, It's I've got to I've got to watch like forty hours of TV if I want to catch There's up. There's a fantastic Adam Sandberg um, short for when he was doing the Emmys about how he has to spend a whole year rewatching all the shows to catch up. Exactly. And it's exactly that. It's That's exactly, exactly that, how yeah. I feel. So there's so many shows I never watch because it's like. I'm intimidated by the runtime. And that's going to happen to more people. Because they're going to realize, oh, I want to watch the new Avengers film. I need to watch the Loki whatever. Oh, that's another 10 hours of my life that I need to add on to watching this. It's just too much. Another interesting point that I was trying to sort of, I was thinking about before was um, basically, when you think about it, are there that many other big Hollywood names they can even attach to the MCU? Because now to the point, because obviously what I was saying before about they have like quite obscure characters. Like the only reason why Doctor Strange was as successful as it was was ben because you put Bender Cumberbatch, who is massively famous, especially in like the um, and I hate to say this, it will sound so cliche and sort of I sound like a boomer, but sort of the kind of geeky kind of like oh people who love Sherlock probably like MCU as well. Therefore there is that crossover in the sense. Oh, that, sure. And a lot of yeah. Amer- I think, and to be fair to them, it might be a slightly unfair comparison, but I think a lot of Americans do see Bandit Cumberbatch as Sherlock. Oh, for sure. Because that is their predominant view of him in that role. And I think that obviously helps Doctor Strange become as successful as it was. But are there that many other big names they can really attach to the MCU? See, I the think, think that, yeah, well, I, DC is pulling big names. Mm. Think of The Rock. We, talk, we, we spoke about The Rock last week with Georgina, and we were saying how he's kind of a character of himself. The one film where he does actually really seem to be pouring a lot of heart and soul into, and it's still in pre-production, is Black Adam. Right. Because it was such a seminal character for him when he was a kid. Hmm. And it's not like him saying, you yeah, know, well, I love Fast and Furious and the Hobbs and Shaw. No, like, you can genuinely tell that The Rock is very, very invested in this one superhero. Can we just talk about I that actually like where DC's headed now? I hated where they were three years ago. I like where they're right now. I think that they're going towards something that seems interesting. At least I, I want to see more from them. But I think right now it's interesting. At least. What are you basing that from, Stavindress? Um I'm basing that on three movies. Okay. Only three movies. Shazam, Aquaman, and Joker. Okay. I'm basing on three movies. I have seen three of them. All three of them. All best one is Joker by far, at least for me. I love Joker. It's one of the best movies for me for of this year. Um, I haven't seen that many movies, but I think this movie is really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that they're sort of tapping into uh, like sort of like fun, but also it can get a bit dark. I think that Shazam has that. I want to see where Black Adam goes, um, and they're trying to tapping into really obscure material. Whereas Marvel's going very mainstream, I think. They're taking their big stories, their Civil Wars, their Infinity Wars, and I think they're going to run out of things. Whereas DC's like, okay, you didn't like our Suicide stuff, you didn't like our Justice League, fair enough, it was bad. Let's now do the obscure sh- stuff. 
like Birds of Prey <laughs> or the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn which I love the title I don't know if the movie's going to be good I have no but the movie's amazing the title's amazing See, the posters that they did for the Harley Quinn one mm-hmm. are they've gone all out with the visual style they, they actually they don't care and I like that to their credit they are taking um, a more interesting visual style to heart then they think they're kind of letting each director play around with a visual style mm. which Marvel that's kind of did with Taika Waititi and Thor I, okay, but not honestly, really I don't believe that people obviously say that I don't believe that I think Marvel has like somewhere in Mar- in Disney World, World there is a black ledger book where there's literally a point by point way how to make a, Dis- a Marvel movie and you make it like that. Mm. You might be an interesting director, and they put your name just because of name recognition, or to like you know because you're like, ooh, we can put in a weird person, we can put in uh, somebody from ethnic minority, so we can seem progressive, you know. But it's the same movie. The reason why they did Thor like that is because Thor was the worst of all the movies, like both of them, and he was the most boring character. Nobody went to see him. They were constantly flopping. Well, not flopping, but they were underperforming yeah. to other movies. So like, we need to try and spice it up. Let's make him funny. Which, when the movie came out, actually, a lot of people liked it. But a lot of people, diehard fans were like, this is not Thor. This is not who he is. He's yeah. not a joking guy. And it worked. Because Taika Waititi is a great director. I mean, Jojo Rabbit, I haven't seen it yet, but it's getting great reviews. It was actually filmed in Prague. Fun fact. Really? Yeah, my friend was working on it. Her dad is oh, cool. a movie producer. But yeah, Taika Waititi. And I think that obviously it worked because of him. If you put in somebody else, like, um, I don't know, who's the guy that does all the Rob Schneider movies, you know? I mean, if you, if you use that guy then it wouldn't work. But it's still a Marvel movie. You can still clear tell it's a Marvel movie. Yeah. If you look at Joker, if you just l- remove the label, it works. If you look at Shazam, it can be a standard Superman movie from like mid-90s. And it could be like, okay, you're not attached to it. You're just like a weird guy like Steel with Shaq. Yeah. Better quality, better visual effects. But you know, same kind of mentality. Yeah. It's not really attached to a brand and I like that. I like the fact that they're actually visually different. All these yeah. movies. And totally different. So... Moving well, moving within the world of DC, uh, films that are relevant and important to your childhood, you put down The Dark Knight as one of the choices, right? And that might be one of the best films of the previous decade. Mm. It, it just it works on every level and elevated the story to a completely different, just universe. It was just absolutely incredible. But why is it special to you? Um. For me, I mean, if we're going to go talk very personally, it was like um, the way that I connected with a lot of friends in my school because they're like, oh, you've got this cool movie. It's called Dark Knight because it came out when I was still too young to see it. But when I was like 15, people were like, oh, we've got our PlayStation. Let's get a DVD and let's watch it. And that's when I saw it for the first time and I loved it. I loved everything. But I was a, I, Batman is my favorite comic book character by far, like out of every other character that is there. And his rogues gallery is fantastic. And I love that movie, not because it's realistic it was. Um, at that time, was I was really into sort of like just exploring cinema in many ways, trying to see what I, what I was there. A lot of movies were really bad that I watched, like older ones, because like, oh, they're old, they have to be good. Spoiler, they're not. But some of them really good, and this Dark Knight just tapped into some potential that I didn't see before, and it just showed me a different world. Also, it showed me Christopher Nolan, which I'm just so happy because such a great director. So was that your first Nolan film? Yes, it was. Yes, definitely my first Nolan film, and since then I've seen all of them except for the one with Robin Williams and Al Pacino, Insomnia, I think, and his first one, yes. the um, I don't remember the first one, the one that the black and white one that he did about men stalking people. Yeah, I yeah. haven't seen that one. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen those two, but everything else I've seen so far. Yeah, yeah, and, I've seen, I've seen yeah. most of his stuff. No, they, yeah, that I think he just as t- well for someone like Christopher Nolan to tackle that film was a very interesting venture. Because on the one hand, he had to play with the source material and keep it kind of close to what it was, because yeah. you know, at the end of the day, you are working for DC. But on the other hand, he brought what he does best, which is philosophical cinema. Mm-hmm. We were talking about opening shots. That opening shot in Dark Knight, when they the bank heist, is perfect. Yeah. So tense, so incredibly shot. The, the music, the score by Hans Zimmer, amazing. Amazing, Absolutely. just yep. exceptional. Yeah, yeah. honestly, I, I mean, you know, it did bring us the sort of like the dun sound that like is now in every movie, every summer. Yeah, but it's so good. It's still so good. It it sets 
the stage right. for everyone else to try and catch up. Because I don't think there's any superhero film since that lives up to it. I'm particularly fascinated by Batman itself as a character, and I think it might speak to something that is... Um, and I, this is me just... I was thinking about this the other day, I was talking about someone I live with, and I think there's something uniquely... If you're not an American, then your, your favourite... If you're, if you're not an American, your favourite superhero is probably Batman. Like, I've spoken to a lot of people, and it's a very common thing, that I think it's non-Americans sort of identify with Batman more than anyone else because he is just a normal man and because in yeah. sort of in Europe and like in America obviously in America they have sort of their whole system is based on basically they, they are an incredible country it's the uh, I can't remember what the word is they use to describe it you point uh, American exceptionalism exceptionalism yeah Correct. and they believe that obviously anyone can be that superhero whereas I think other countries have a more sort of um, sort of not laid back but sort of more a sedate view of what a hero yeah. can be and I think that speaks to a lot of people. And I think the fact that Batman is is a normal man, he has a lot of money, but he is not himself a superhero. He has the same abilities as everyone else. And the fact that that sort of fits in with the realism of Christopher Nolan's sort of vision of sort of realism as well, I think that sort of what is what elevates the film above any other superhero film. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the fact that American... American mainstream family-friendly pop culture mm. is hasn't really changed a lot in, since it, since its inception. Comics are always are always yeah, ironically, <laughs> incept uh, no inception. Comics were always meant to be kind of like this uplifting. We can do it. Like Captain America was you know, a, a beacon of hope, and for comics to get dark is comics aren't mainstream anymore. Mm. Even though people say they are. They aren't as as big as they used to be, and comics were always kind of that that family friendly, uplifting look. Pop music, like mainstream pop music, to this day still is uplifting and positive. Whereas cinema has started bringing in these these other ideals, but superhero films didn't really do that until The Dark Knight. Mm. And European cinema, specifically, I I I'd argue that. It's always been very introspective, and Euro European culture is isn't afraid to look inwards and analyze what what we, what am I doing wrong as a person? What are we doing wrong as a culture? I think that's uh, okay. Hot take right now. That's why I think I really like The Watchmen, the um, Zack Snyder movie from two thousand nine. I think that's a good movie. I think it's flawed as flaws, but it's still. A really introspective movie, and it tries to look, at least a little critically, on the superhero genre. Even though it was, yeah. it, it, it was before its time, it, you know, for sure. Yeah, I haven't watched Zack Snyder's Watchmen yet because I'm currently reading the comic book. Okay, but if if I'm not mistaken, it's very much kind of like almost a one to one adaptation of the comic. It looks like the comic. It looks it, like it. it. Honestly, it's I think the closest a, a movie can get to a comic book look. Okay, and I think that's because of Zack Snyder. I mean, I have a lot of problem with the director. I think he's um, a one-trick pony in the way that he makes movies. Yeah, same here. But I think that his early work, minus the zombie movie that uh, was it, Dawn of the Dead. I think that Three Hundred and The Watchmen, I think, do stand out mm -hmm. as exceptional—not comic movies or anything like that—but interpretations of transpilations or transpilations of one media to another. He. Move, takes the three hundred source or Watchmen and just he moves it from one media to another as if it was seamlessly, almost seamlessly, with casting, costume design, set design, cinematography, shots. It looks immaculate. Yeah. You know? See that that that's the thing when it comes to Zack Snyder's films. I I don't really like like a single of his films, a single one of his films except for three hundred, because. Sure, I watched it when, when I was a teenager, and it's the kind of thing where I was like, yo, you want to see, like, the badass parts? And it's like, the fight <laughs> scenes are incredible, because they're badass. And then, as you grow up, you realize, yeah, no, these fight scenes really are badass. And if if you're not into technical filmmaking, it looks cool. If you're into technical filmmaking, the techniques that they have for it all to work is crazy. The one I like is, um, so the bit where they are in the kind of valley, and they are pushing through mm -hmm. the um, the Persians... And it's the one where they kind of like make a, ba a big break forward. It's kind of like halfway through the film. That film has a lot of uh, comic book cuts 
to, to say, where it kind of zooms in on the action. Uh, just one zoom, action happens, another zoom, action happens, another zoom. And to do that, because the zooms are happening in slow motion, they actually built a rig with a green screen. And the rig has, I think, about four or five cameras, all set to the slow motion setting, but each one at a different zoom. And then digitally, they just went from one zoom to another. Because it's you, you basically can't really speed up time zoom at the same time if you're filming in slow motion. It's just not technically possible. But it is. With Zack Snyder's vision to do that. That's interesting, yeah. I mean, I didn't know this. I know there was, like, the story when there... Um, I think it's also in the midway point. Um, when there's sort of, like, the profile shot of the Spartans on the left. And they're sort of... And it's, like, speeding up, slowing down. Speeding that's up. That's the one, yeah. Yeah, that's the one. That's, that's the, the one, one, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, oh, that's it's such an incredible shot, honestly, and it's like the one that people remember the most, I think, from the movie. Yeah, it's, you know? it's very, very memorable in its visual style, which is weird considering it single-handedly pioneered and o oversaturated <laughs> the film market with that kind of just brown yeah. aesthetic. Because mm. the film yeah. is gold; it's like golden. Yeah. That is the only color in the film, mm. except for the blood. It's so, just to, so, oh, so, so, so to bring us sort of bound full circle, we did tease this a bit earlier that we would eventually get onto um Czech film, <laughs> and in the films that you said were meaningful to you, you did actually include a film from Czech right. Republic. So I just wondered, what is the film, and what sort of what um, what is meaningful about it to you? So the film is called Cozy Dance. It's a Czech comedy made in the nineties, right after communism sort of toppled down and we became uh, independent, and you know trying to move towards the West. And it's set in this um, one housing block in Prague. Um, and, these, and it's interaction of two families. One is extremely pro-communist. The other one is um, they were fighting against the Nazis a couple, because it's set in the 60s. Um, and they were fighting against the Nazis and they're sort of like this antagonism and like push against them. And you see how different people view communism through a very lighthearted lens. Mm. And I think that what's sort of like been discussing a lot is like... Um, how a movie is quotable. If you, I literally tried this here in the university. If you name a quote from this movie to anybody, if it, regardless they're Czech, Slovak, or Polish, they will know the quote. It is extremely well known in Central Europe because of how it deals with communism, how it asks different difficult questions about communism and what it did to Central Europe and Europe in general. Um, the, movie, the reason why it's so diff uh, important for me is because it's a Christmas staple. It's said during Christmas. And um, everybody in Czech Republic watch it. It goes on TV at like midday on a Christmas Eve and you just watch it with your family. You have some food, you have some coffee or tea and you just watch it and you're just, you have a good time. And that's why it's important because it's like, if I would connect like a really nice family thing with this and like I feel that what the question was about, it's this movie, 100%, hands down this one. Um, I think Czech is good. I think there's a lot of good movies, especially from before. Um, we won actually two Oscars for Best Foreign Picture. Um, for Kolia and for um, uh, Closely Observed Trains. Uh, and both of those are really good movies. They're just very different. And I think that I think that's why people should look more into foreign sound to come full circle. Which is the, the, the war film that you were telling me about. There's There was a black and white Czech war film. Right. Is it that maybe it's coming out this year? Uh, yes, yes, yes. So this is... Um, it's a brand new film. I, um, it's called, um, Colored Bird, I think. Uh, it's basically, it's a three hour epic. Um, uh, well, it received like yeah. really good, wasn't it reviewed by The Guardian and it was set, it, it, they said it was one of the best films of the year. It's, my friend saw it and it's extremely, yeah, The Painted Bird, sorry, yeah, The Painted Bird and it's, um, extremely vicious and brutal. It's, um, but I get us. Hollywood actors and Stellan Skarsgård, Harvey Keitel in it. Um, it's all shot in black and white. Um, it's sort of it's a mix of Czech, English, Polish, and German, and I think also Yiddish and Russian. So it's like oh, cool. it, it speaks about it tells the story of this one kid who's stuck on um, the not well not Eastern Front technically, but in Eastern Czech Republic, like um, Western Poland during World War Two, and he needs to survive on his own. And he meets all these characters on his way that are just despicable and horrible and vicious and just the most vile characters and they're both Nazis and both they are civilians and it just portrays the brutality of humanity. I haven't seen it yet. My friend saw it. She told me that there are scenes in that movie 
which will make you faint. Like, that movie is just nauseatingly realistic in its portrayal of violence. And um, we've submitted for the Oscars, so, you know, hopefully, hopefully something will happen out of it. But no, I think Czech cinema is, just as any other European cinema, it's worth watching. There's really good stuff in there. And if people just want to try, even if it's not their own language, they'll see something very different compared to what's given now. You know, in mainstream. What would you say is the biggest difference between sort of Czech cinema and sort of mainstream sort of US and obviously now if sort of US cinema kind of bleeds a fair amount into British cinema as well? So sort of what would you say sets it apart from both that and other European cinema like French cinema? I'm going to quote Michael Palin from the Monty Python right now. Recently when he was getting knighted, he said that the best, uh, that people with the best humour in the world that he met were the Czechs because nothing for them is sacred. Nothing. And that's true. We, I think, have the bleakest humor of anybody that I've ever met. And that's, I think, a large reason for why our cinema is very different, because we hold nothing back. We make fun of everything, and we can, like, make a really bleak scene and then put something, like, lighthearted, almost cynical into it and make it um, just the most wonderful thing. Um, an example, actually, from the cozy dance that I would say is the movie opens with this guy trying to commit, this kid trying to commit suicide. That's the opening. It's it's a Christmas setting, and you see this family, and they're like speaking in Russian. They're like shaking hands with this officer. And in the background, there's a shed, and the kid is trying to kill himself because he's in love with this other girl. And he sees the girl, and he's like, "God damn it! I just have to end it right now because I see her." And he does it, and because it's an old shed in Eastern, in Central Europe, it breaks. So this whole thing crumbles open, and he's just in dust. And the girl comes like. What are you doing? Seriously? And it it's really bleak. Mm. It's really dark. But I think it speaks to a greater truth in Czech cinema. Um, in the one movie that we won uh, Oscar for, um, Close to Observe Trains, there's a scene, it's, it's sort of like, it's based on a book. And there's a scene when this protagonist who works on a tra- rain, uh, railway station, train station, uh, he finds these dead horses lying by the rail, by the rails, and they're all turned on their back, so their legs are sticking up, you know, straight up. And it's a very, it's black and white movie. It's very dark and very bleak. And the character just decides to sit on them, on their bellies, and you have this shot, and it's it's strange, it's weird, it's comical, it's bleak, and he just speaks to what Czech cinema is, and I think no other cinema tackles it as well as we do. But again, you know, I'm happy to be proven wrong. No, that's a very interesting take, and I think do you think do you think the fact your appreciation of that sort of uh, style of comedy is what perhaps makes you less inclined to enjoy this sort of stereotypical American comedies? Yes, I I want um the one comedy TV show that I absolutely adore, and I'm two of them actually, is Faulty Towers and Monty Python. Mm. I adore that because they have a certain I almost said intelligent quality, but they they speak you know they they try and not just make fart jokes and poop jokes and just yell at each other even though there's a lot of yelling and a lot of all the other two things, but they're trying to be a bit smart about the comedy. And when you grow up in a setting where kind of comedy has, it's just not one layer, one kind, but it's so diverse and it literally everything can be funny to you. When you look at movies and you see, oh, this is just another thing that I've seen 75 million times before, it gets boring and predictable and you just can tell everything. Like the movie that I mentioned there was Grown Ups with Adam Sand- Adam Sandler. Uh, Hopefully Uncut Gems are good. I heard great stuff about it, you know, but everything before, most of before that with Adam Sandler is not, in my opinion, good. I think he's just very one-kind comedian in that sense. Not a one-kind actor, he can act. But as a comedian, mm. and I think that's the problem for me. I think we could probably go on to add infinitum with talking about Adam Sandler and his career. Yes. But unfortunately, I think it's probably time for us to almost wrap the podcast up because we have been going for an hour already. Yeah, so the takeaways people should... Um, take away from the show is watch more foreign film mm-hmm. watch Czech film and don't watch, Marvel. Like? don't watch Marvel films if you do you can we'll judge you though and what else should they take away what do you want to plug um, I think that the thing that you sh- that you should be interested in is um, seeing different movies not just the one kind the market right now is really oversaturated stuff and it can get really e- really easy to get lost but people forget that there's a lot of good indie movies coming out right now Thanks to thanks to Big Blo- Big Blockbuster Entertainment because studios have money to fund smaller smaller projects. You should watch that. Support small entrepreneurs. Um, wonderful movie Toby saw a couple of weeks ago was The Lighthouse. Yep. I haven't seen it because I could not get on the plane quick enough. <sighs> Man, yeah. Uh, watch stuff like that. Watch uh, the Safdie Brothers. 
Good time. I want to plug that. Great, great movie. Great movie. There's a bleep. So close. There's a, there's a bleep. There's a bleep. Uh, so, watch independent movies. I think that's, regardless of where they come from. Obviously, watch European movies. I think there's a lot of good stuff. Um, international movies in general, you know, not just European. I mean, um, Argentina, Argentina has fantastic Argentine cinema. cinema is brilliant, yeah. You know? um, Chinese cinema is apparently really good. Russian cinema is amazing. I, we could talk about that for a very long time. So, yeah, international movies over uh, blo- big blockbuster entertainment that's just all samey. And Pretty. also, there is definitely a TED Talk that we should check out, isn't there? Yes. Please, uh, I hope that somehow my name will be somewhere. Yes, uh, we'll If you in. just type my name into YouTube, Matthias Spillin, and also put TEDx, you'll see my TED Talk. It's like 12 minutes. It's on languages on how to learn how to learn them effectively. I think it's really interesting. It was, I think, decent research. It can be really interesting for a lot of people, especially those that are not native speakers like me, and to hear how I got from being a basic Czech guy actually speaking good English, you know. Um, obviously, Instagram, Facebooks, that kind of stuff, you know, just my name. If you're interested in, you know, talking to me, chatting to me, whatever. And you can find me on Twitter at Josh Sandy and on Instagram at Josh W. Sandy. Uh, all my socials are at Tobias Soar. Thank you for listening to this episode of the A24 Fan Club podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show, man. Thanks a lot. It was great. Thank you very much. And we'll see you again next week. See you all soon.